If you want to find your Bible and you want to take it and find your place at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to be looking at that chapter of Scripture. As you know, we're studying through 1 Corinthians and we've arrived at chapter 8. And I know some of you have read chapter 8 and you thought, what in the world is he going to say to me out of that chapter? Trust me. If I can find things out of the other chapters, I can find things out of this chapter to say, right? There are some really important things to say out of this chapter. And we'll be reading that chapter, all 13 verses of it, in just a few minutes. But I want us to begin by bowing our heads together and asking the Lord to lead us and to guide us into His Word today. Heavenly Father, I am not capable of being the kind of teacher that everybody that's listening needs to hear. But your Holy Spirit is not limited as I am. And I pray, Lord God, that as we study your word, you promised that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would guide us into all truth. And I pray that the Holy Spirit today will guide us into the truth that's found here in 1 Corinthians 8. Lord, this journey has been a lengthy journey, and it's going to be a lengthy one going forward. We're realizing that the Corinthians lived in a world that was very much like our world, and the truth that you gave to the Apostle Paul and that he penned in this book is truth that we need today as much as they needed it in the first century. So, Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. Help us to draw a circle around ourselves and and stop thinking outside of that circle for a moment. Help us to say to you, Lord, speak to me today. Speak to me today from your word. I ask these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to begin today by just introducing you to something that I want to make sure you understand or you won't appreciate what 1 Corinthians 8 is really all about. The Holy Spirit guides His people, His children, you and me. The Holy Spirit guides God's children through His Word. And so we go to the Word of God frequently, hopefully daily. We're spending time in in the Word of God. We find inspiration, and we find comfort, and we find correction. We find guidance, and many other things when we're reading in our Bibles. There there are lots of things that God is doing in our hearts as we're opening the Scripture. But especially when it comes to where God wants us to go and what God wants us to do, when we come to our Bibles, we find two very specific things. We find principles, and we find precepts. Principles and precepts. And I want to illustrate for just a moment um, the difference in the two. If you will think of precepts, and by precepts I mean commands, I mean instructions, I mean imperatives, things that we are told, this is what I want you to do. When you think of of these kinds of precepts, I want you to think of it as a dot, this big black dot that was made for me this week so I could hold it up here. And you talk about a challenge. This is a challenge. It wants to curl up and do all these other things, but it's like a big dot, if you will. If you want to be obedient to God and follow God when it comes to one of his precepts, one of the commands, one of the things he tells us we must do, then the only thing you can do is do exactly what he tells you. In other words, if this little dot is a command, then the only way to be obedient to God is that we're standing on that command and we're doing exactly what that command says. That's precept. When you think about precepts, uh, think about uh, some of the most famous ones that come to people's minds. There's 10 of them. They're called the 10 commandments. So it's easy to illustrate this way. Thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not commit adultery, or thou shalt not uh, bear false witness, shall not lie, thou shalt not covet. The only way you can be guided through the Scripture when it comes to precepts is that whatever the precept says, that you do exactly what it says. There's no gray area in this matter. 
You can't be over here and be obedient to God. You can't be over there and be obedient to God. You can't be up there or back there and be, be obedient to God. If God says do something, you've got to stand on that black dot and you've got to say, that's exactly what I've got to do. I am commanded to do this, period. The black dot, period. That's what it means by precept. There are lots of precepts in the Scripture, lots of things that God commands us to do as his children, in specific situations, at certain times, in relationships, uh, in different areas of our lives. There are things that God commands us because we as his children are supposed to be living a different kind of life. We're supposed to be unique uh, to the world around us. We're supposed to be distinct uh, from the society in which we live. We're supposed to look different and act different and be different because we are different. We are the children of the living God, and we're supposed to be reflecting that. And so whatever it is he commands us to do, whatever the precept is, he says, this is what I want you to do. Thou shalt. Whatever that is, the only way to be obedient is to be right on spot, right on the spot that he says, I'm going to do what God says. However, in the scripture, there are also those things that we call principles. Principles are, are much more general in nature. Precepts are very specific. Principles are much more general in nature, and they deal with areas where God doesn't specifically have something to say about it. Areas of life where you know, the Bible doesn't address it. There is no commandment about it. There is no specific instruction to obey that God has given on this subject. But to make a decision and to be able to know what we should do in a given situation, then we go back to the Bible and we start looking for the principles. And if you'll think of the principles sort of like a frame. I should have put my picture in the middle here. <laughs> sort of like a frame. And you got a principle here, and you got a principle there, and one over here, and one over here. And these are principles. Now you got to make a decision. A decision that's not, by the, that's not guided by precept, a specific command that God says, I have to do. You have to do this. If you don't do this, you're disobedient. You're not following me. Now you're dealing with something that's not a precept. You're dealing with something that has to be guided by principles. God doesn't specifically address it. He doesn't say, all right, thus says the Lord on this matter. And so you have to go to the Bible. You have to start looking for the precepts that are found there. And then you start looking at the decision you have to make and where you believe God would have you to go and what you believe God would have you to do. And based upon the precepts, you begin making your decisions. And here's something interesting about principles. Within the framework of the principles, one person may decide to do this. Another person may decide to do that. Another person may decide to do this. Another person may decide to do this. Are they all right? They're all right. Because they're all within the principles that are laid out in the scripture. God didn't specifically give a precept on the matter. Thus says the Lord, you have to do this. He gives principles to guide us where there are not precepts. And within the boundaries of the precepts, within the framework of the precepts, or excuse me, the principles that God gives us, within the framework of the principles that God gives us, we can make different decisions and different choices. And none of us are wrong. All of us are right. We're just different in the choices that we make. And so in the Bible, there are both precepts and there are principles. What we are looking at when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a principle that God gives. It is one of the boundaries. When you're making a decision, it is one of these boundaries that God is giving Something to help govern you, something to help guide you, something to help you know, okay, I've got to make a decision here. It's, it's not said that this is right. It's not said that this is wrong. There's no precept on this issue. So, so I've got to figure out, now, God, what do you want me to do? And you begin looking at the principles, and you say, okay, within the boundaries of the framework, the, as long as I don't go outside these boundaries, I'm okay. If I go outside the boundaries, then I'm in trouble again. But if I stay within these boundaries, I may choose one thing, you may choose another thing, we may do things differently within those boundaries, but we're being guided by the principle. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we are introduced to one, not all, but we are introduced to one of the principles that governs the Christian life when we are confronted with things that might be considered the gray areas of life. It's not black or white. There's no commandment that says this is what you have to do, and if you don't do this, you're in disobedience. It's something that the Scripture doesn't necessarily speak to directly on its own. And so God says, look at the principles, and within the boundaries of those principles, you make a wise decision. And in doing so, I will be pleased, and you will be moving in a direction that pleases me. And one of those principles is the principle that's, that's found here in 1 Corinthians 8. So that's what we're looking at today. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what we're looking at today. We're looking at one of these principles that guides us where God doesn't specifically speak to us about some area of life and give us a command about what we're supposed to do. And there are lots of those areas in life. Now I want to back up for just a moment. And I'm going to give you a big picture view before we get down to the very narrow view of reading the Scripture. And I want to tell you that what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is meat that has been offered to idols. Meat that's been offered to idols. And I know immediately, you do like me, you say, what in the world we don't have idol worship in America, and we don't offer animal sacrifices to our idols. And what in the world are you going to tell me about meat that is offered to idols? Well, we sort of do have idols. Sometimes they're big stadiums that seat thousands and thousands, and sometimes they're theaters where we render our worship, and sometimes they're educational institutions, and sometimes they're other kinds of things that we sacrifice ourselves and sacrifice our lives you know, in order to accomplish or to achieve or to be a part of something that's in that realm. But we're talking specifically today about meat that, that's offered to idols. And here's what's going on. In the city of Corinth, there are all kinds of idols and there's all kinds of temples to these idols. And the worshipers will come and they will bring their sacrifices, their animal sacrifices, and sacrifice them to those gods. Um, they want to appease those false gods, those pagan gods. They, they don't want the curses of those gods to fall on them. And so they bring their sacrifices as a matter of worship. The animal is sacrificed and there is meat that is, that is left over. Well, the, the result is that these Christians who were living in the city of Corinth know that idols aren't anything. They're a piece of stone. They're a block of wood. They have no power in of themselves. There is no God behind those uh, idols. They know that what goes on, on up there at the temple doesn't do any good. It's like carrying a rabbit's foot in your pocket, like throwing salt over your shoulder. It, it does absolutely no good whatsoever. It's just their superstition. There is no God that they're worshiping. It's a false God. It's not a true God that they're worshiping up there at that, that, that false temple. And, and there are Christians who know in their heart of hearts, they know that that God is nothing and they know that that temple is nothing. And the result of that is that they decide that they're going to eat some of that meat that has been offered to the, island, uh, to the idols. Now, you could come in contact with this meat in, in one of three ways. You could do so by showing up at the temple when the worship is going on, waiting for the fellowship meal that followed, sitting down at the fellowship meal with the worshipers that are coming out of the worship of this false god and enjoying the meal that's provided that comes from the sacrificial meat that's been offered either in that sacrifice or in previous sacrifices to eat some of that meat that's been offered as a sacrifice to that idol. And you sit down there and you just have a big banquet with everybody else that was there for the purpose of worshiping. And that's one of the ways that you could come in contact with eating this kind of meat. There's another way that you could come in contact with eating this kind of meat, and that is that you would go to the marketplace and you would be able to buy some of this meat that was left over 
and it would be at cheaper prices than the other meat. For the most part, people, the common person in the first century didn't eat a lot of beef, didn't eat a lot of lamb, didn't eat a lot of meat. It was too expensive. They couldn't afford it. So if you went to the marketplace and you, you saw some meat that was like half the price or more than half the price of what you normally would see on a, on a particular piece of meat at the market, you'd think to yourself, wow, I, I could afford that. We could buy that. My family could have that. And they would go to the market and sometimes they would see this cheaper meat that had come as a result of the sacrifices up here at the temple and, and they could buy that meat. You see, when they would bring their sacrifices, one portion of it was burned, one portion of it was given to the priest who was making the sacrifice, and a third of it, another third of it, was given to the worshiper himself or herself. If the priest didn't need the meat that was given to him, he would give it down here to the market, and the market people would begin to sell that meat at the reduced price. And so you could purchase some of that meat. So you can go up to the temple, you can wait for the worship to end, enjoy the fellowship meal with the rest of those that are worshipers up there. You know that meat's not contaminated by the idol. There is no such thing behind the idol. There is no God behind the idol. You know that what they're doing in there is just wasted effort. It is going through the motions of something superstitious to them. There's no truth to the idol that they're supposedly worshiping. So I'm just going to go eat that meat and that's one of the ways you could have gotten it in the marketplace. Another way you could have gotten that meat was to be invited to somebody's house who had purchased the meat. Are y'all still with me? Are y'all hungry yet? <laughs> you, you could have been invited to somebody's house for the purpose of uh, having a meal together. Or you could have been invited for a party or a meeting or a gathering or a celebration in one of the rooms that was off of one of the temples, like a banquet room where they would have their fellowship meals, was used for social gatherings as well. And the meat that would be served in some of those rooms for those social gatherings, those social events, those celebratory events, or the meat that your friend had purchased and had cooked and put on the table and invited you to come and eat, then you would be confronted with the potential or the possibility of having to eat that meat. Now, I want to tell you specifically what I, I, I believe. I believe that what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is when they would go to the temple, these false temples where the false gods were found and they would wait for the fellowship meal that followed and they were participating in the fellowship meal. And I say that uh, for the reason that's found here in verse 10, chapter 8, verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, that's what we're talking about, knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. I guess that could mean that they had gone to a, a celebration of some kind or a, a meeting or a, a social event of some kind, and you were not there for the worship of the false god. You were there in one of the rooms off the, the worship site of the, of the false god, and you were there to meet others and to celebrate with others, but, but you're there at the temple in some fashion. You're there at the temple in some fashion. It's, it's not until you get over to chapter 10 if you look over just a page in your Bible, that you begin to see this meat that's been purchased, whether by yourself or by a friend. You notice verse 27, 10, 27. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. And so in chapter 8, I think you're talking about those who are going up to the temple either to wait for the worship to end and to be a part of the, the fellowship meal or who were going up to the temple to be in a banquet or to be in a celebration or to be there for a birthday party or to be there in one of those rooms that they had there that could be used for a gathering and the meat was being served. Now, the people with knowledge, are you with me? That the people with knowledge knew that the idol was nothing. The people knew, that had knowledge, knew that the meat that had been offered to the idol wasn't contaminated by the offering. And they knew that partaking in that meat wasn't going to somehow defile them in some way and harm them in some way. 
They knew that. But not everybody knew that. If you look at chapter 8, if you look at verse 7, and listen to what he says. However, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And so you begin to see the problem, don't you? you got some who know that there's nothing to the idol, there's nothing to the meat, there's no contamination by eating the meat. They have a strong, sound, mature faith that's grounded in their Savior, and they're not worried about being uh, in some fashion uh, harmed by eating the meat. But not everybody felt that way, and not everybody saw it that way. There were some who didn't have that knowledge. And you have to stop and you have to remember that many of these Corinthian believers had grown up in this pagan world. They had been used to seeing the idols in the idol temples, and they were used to smelling the, the, the sacrifices and the roasting of the meat at these various temples wherever they were. And they knew that that kind of a sacrifice was somehow, for the individual who was going there, a, a devotion, an expression of their devotion to that false god. And as new believers in Christ, they, they had not grown to the place spiritually that they could, in, in, within themselves, within their own conscience, be able to say, it's okay for me to eat that meat and not worry about it, and it not bother me when I eat it. They had not reached that place in their own spiritual life. And so you got these that are knowledgeable. You got these that are immature and not yet knowledgeable. And a conflict is existing. The knowledgeable see no problem eating the meat. No matter where you get it, no matter how you use it, we have no problem. It doesn't affect us. It's just cheaper than the other meat. By the way, you brought the best sacrifices when you came to worship. You didn't bring the worst meat you could find. You brought the best meat you could find, the best animal you could find. So it's some of the best meat you could possibly have. And it's not going to contaminate us. It doesn't mean I'm worshiping that idol. There is nothing to that idol anyway. I'm going to enjoy this meat. But there are others who are young in the faith. They're not fully grounded in their faith. They're still unstable in their faith. They're not sure of the convictions of their faith yet. And they're not to the place where their conscience would let them eat because the association that it has with that temple. As a matter of fact, these that are the less knowledgeable are called the weak. Notice down in verses 10, 11, and 12. Actually, verse 9, 10, 11, 12. Verse 9, at the end of the verse, he says, the weak. In verse 10, he says, who is weak. Verse 11, that shall the weak brother. In verse 12, wound their weak conscience. In other words, these are those that are yet growing in their faith. They are yet coming to the stability of their lives. These are the ones that are unstable due to their lack of confidence in their new Christian convictions and maybe even lack the strength to resist. Are you listening? They maybe even lack the strength to resist being drawn back into that pagan idolatry in which Jesus had saved them from. And so the Apostle Paul comes, and the Apostle Paul says, we have a dilemma here in Corinth. Some of you think nothing of eating this meat. Others of you are deeply offended by those who are eating the meat because you're concerned. It violates your conscience, and the conflict exists between the two. And it's creating a problem within the church. It must have come as a shock. As a matter of fact, it's going to come as a shock to some of you. It must have come as a shock to some of those in Corinth that he did not rebuke the weak believers. He did not rebuke the weak believers for having such a frail conscience. He could have said to those that are weak, that are offended by the eating of that meat, that feel that 
There's a consciousness of the idol when they eat that meat. He could have said to them, grow up. Grow up. Stop acting like a baby. Stop living by what you believe. Start living, I should say, by what you believe. Grow up. He could have said that. But he doesn't do that. Instead of rebuking the weak Christians with the fragile consciences, he reprimands, listen to me, he reprimands the strong and the mature, the knowledgeable Christians for being proud of their rights at the expense of those that are less knowledgeable and failing to act in love toward them. He says to those of us who are strong believers, stop acting the way you're acting and consider those younger believers. You should know better. You that have all this knowledge and you know those idols are nothing and you know that temple is nothing and the worship of that God is nothing and the eating of that meat can't contaminate you, you know all that. What's wrong with you? You're stable in your beliefs. You're strong in your beliefs. You're sure in your faith. Okay, then you have the responsibility, not the weak. You have the responsibility to take into consideration that weaker brother or sister and do nothing that would cause them to offend or cause them to stumble in their faith. Now, are you with me so far? Now, read along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. He's answering a question now concerning. That's always the mark of a question that was asked of the Apostle Paul, and he's now giving them an answer. Now concerning things offered to idols. We know, Paul includes himself, we know that we all have knowledge. By the way, that's, a, that's a, one of the slogans that the Christians in Corinth use. We all have knowledge. We all have knowledge. It's a little bit like saying everybody could know this if they wanted to know this and they were willing to believe this. Everybody could know this. We all have knowledge. It's all within our grasp. It's all available for all of us. We all have knowledge. But then he says something really powerful. He says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I realize this knowledge is within the, Greek, within the grasp, within the reach of every person that's come to faith in Christ in Corinth. I understand that. And that knowledge is available to everybody who's trusted in Christ. But I want to tell you something. Your knowledge, your knowing that you can do these things and have no contamination as a result of doing these things and doing them in a manner that causes your brothers or sisters that are weaker than you to stumble, your knowledge is making you arrogant. You're walking around saying, hey, look at me. I can have this meat. Hmm. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Can't you eat it? Why can't you eat it? You're not strong enough to eat it? You mean it bothers you? I mean, what is this idol? This idol's nothing. You know that. Why'd you come to Jesus if why'd you come to Jesus if you thought the idol was something? What's wrong with you people? Don't you know better? Don't you understand? I mean, can't you grow up a little bit? Can't you mature a little bit in your faith? I mean, the knowledge is available for everybody. Everybody's got it, and they're walking around in their arrogance. Huh? You know what I had last night? I had filet mignon. Up there at the temple, I want to tell you that you know, they, they came out of worship in the beef that they brought out and they cooked up. I mean, it was, it was, it was like going to the finest restaurant you could go to possibly. I mean, the meat was so tender and it was so juicy when you cut it, your knife just sort of went right through it and it didn't even, didn't even act like there was, it was like butter cutting that meat. It was just, I mean, it was unbelievable. And the weaker believers are looking at them with eyes that are like saucers. Oh, I can't believe you went up there. I used to go up there. I, used to, I know what they do up there. I know how they act up there. I, I know what goes on up there. That idol up there. You, you'd eat the meat that was offered to that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. That, that's, that bothers me. That, that concerns me. 
I mean, I know I've only been a believer a little while. I've only known the Lord a little while. I'm, I'm, just, I'm really just getting grounded in my faith, but, but this really concerns me. He says, knowledge puffs up, but he says, you know what? Love edifies. We, we like to walk around talking about how much we know. But it's not how much you know, it's how much you love that matters. He rebukes them. Verse 2, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, you think you're so smart? He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You think anybody has all the knowledge they need to know? You think anybody's as smart as they ought to be? You think there aren't things that you can't still learn? You're not as smart as you think you are if you're not using your knowledge in a loving fashion. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. That's a great phrase. If you love God, God knows you. In other words, God knows you, and the result is that you love God. It's the same thing John says in 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. You love God because God knows you, and the more you love God, the more God reveals himself to you, and the deeper the relationship grows. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols... We know that an idol, these are the strong, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are, now listen to the phrase, even if there are so-called gods, and there are, I mean, it's obvious. There's temples here and temples there and temples everywhere. There's idols everywhere. There's worship going on to these idols going on everywhere. These so-called gods, they're everywhere whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. They can look around. They can see what people are doing and know what they themselves have done. Verse 6, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And actually, if you could read that in the original text, you would see there's a parallelism going on. The first phrase is, one God, the Father. The second line is, of whom are all things, and we for him. The third line is, one Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth line is, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. In other words, he's making a declaration here. He's making a declaration of, of doctrine. We know there is one God. You that have the knowledge here that are acting without love, acting in an unloving fashion, we know there is one God. We affirm that. We all affirm that. However, verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol, until now, eat it, as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. There are some amongst you believers who aren't as grounded in their faith and aren't as sure in their knowledge as you. And when you're eating that meat and you want them to participate with you, you're violating their conscience because they aren't yet certain and sure of what they're doing. Do you see what's happening? Verse 8. This is not for the weak. This is for the strong, by the way. This is for the knowledgeable. But, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. He's talking to the knowledgeable. Hey, the, you, you make so much out of the food you're eating, it's no big deal. You that know this, it's no big deal. If you eat it, you're not going to be bettered by it, made more in favor with God by it. If you don't eat it, you're not going to be made more in favor with God by not eating it. Stop making so much out of this meat. Stop making so much out of your knowledge as if you have a right to throw around what you know to the detriment of those who haven't reached the level of knowledge that you have. Verse 9. But beware, that's a strong term. He's talking to the knowledgeable, but beware. Lest somehow this liberty, the word means right. Yes, you have a right to eat that meat. Yes, you have liberty to eat that meat, whether at the temple or at your house or at your friend's house. 
Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened? The word means to be encouraged. Be encouraged to eat those things offered to idols. You'll be causing him to violate his or her own conscience. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. That doesn't mean to die eternally. It means to be harmed in some fashion, to be destroyed in some fashion. And in this case, it would be to be destroyed in being sucked back into that system, getting back with those that had been the idolaters from which they had broken free when they trusted in Jesus. Your brother would perish for whom Christ died. By the way, notice how many times, four times, they're called brothers. We're not talking about unbelievers here. We're not talking about what you do offending unbelievers. We're talking about what the knowledgeable people do to offend younger believers, less stable Christians. Verse 11, because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin, you thus, wow, this is a strong word. Did you know that you can know that there's something that's right to do, that there's nothing wrong with do it, doing it, and that you have come to a place in your spiritual life where you have a confidence and a surety that if you did it, it wouldn't be a violation of God, it wouldn't be a violation of your relationship with God? But did you know that if you do that to the detriment of somebody else who's younger in their faith than you, and you cause their conscience to be offended in the process that you have sinned? It's a dangerous thing to put a stumbling block before a younger believer. It's a dangerous thing to cause somebody else that isn't as far along in their faith to fall away from the faith because of the choices and the actions and the things that you do. Verse 12, but when you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That makes sense. It said earlier that these were brethren for whom Christ had died. The Lord, had, the Lord Jesus had died for them. Now you're offending one of his own children. You don't think that's an offense to God? Hey, you offend one of my children. I'm coming for you, buddy. If I offend one of your children, you're coming after me too, right? Verse 13, therefore, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, listen to Paul's declaration. This is Paul's declaration. In light of what I've just been telling you, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Do you get the point of what Paul is saying? Paul is telling you and me by way of a principle that if there is something that we have a right to do, the Scripture does not specifically say we cannot do it. It is within within the principles of Scripture, and we choose over here. But in the process of choosing over here, we cause somebody in the family of God to be offended and to fall away from the Lord or to fall into some kind of destruction as a result of our choice that we sinned against God. Because we sinned against a member of God's family, one of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I know what you're doing. You're sitting there and you're thinking, how in the world does that apply to us today? Well, some of the questionable things Christians might deal with today are things like listening to certain kinds of secular music, drinking alcohol, teaching your kids about Santa Claus, playing cards, some of the casual attire that people wear, eating supper in a casino, dancing in public, mowing your yard on Sunday, reading Harry Potter books, watching horror movies, and a myriad of other similar things. 
about which the Bible really doesn't have a specific thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. But he gives a principle. And the principle is that in any of those areas where the Bible doesn't specifically address, if your exercise, the exercise of your right to do that thing causes somebody else in the faith, younger to you than the faith, who is not as stable in their faith, it causes them to stumble and to fall and to be harmed in the process, then you sin against God if you go ahead and you exercise your right. And that is absolutely the opposite of what Western society teaches. It's all about me. I'm going to do what I want to do, and you cannot tell me, and I will not be controlled by what you think about it. I'm going to do what I want to do. And Paul comes and says, wait a minute. The family of God doesn't operate that way. The family of God recognizes that we are all intertwined with one another. We are all responsible to each other. And if one is hurt in the process, somebody younger and weaker in the faith is hurt in the process of me exercising my right to do what I have liberty to do, it causes somebody else to fall away or somebody else to violate their conscience or somebody else to get in trouble in the faith, then I am the one who sinned. Because I sinned against the family of God. I sinned against my brother or sister in Christ. As a matter of fact, those things I was reading to you a few minutes ago, some of you can't believe anyone would have a problem with any of those kinds of things, but others of you don't think people who were saved should be doing any of those kinds of things. Such is the world of a preacher. That's where we live you got one group who says this is okay and one group who says that's not okay. And the war goes on. So here's the principle. You want to write it down? Here's the principle. It won't be on the screens. Here's the principle. Do not do something you are otherwise allowed to do if it harms a less mature and stable believer. Do not do something you are otherwise allowed to do if it harms a less mature and stable believer. And I know some of you are thinking exactly what I thought when I first learned what 1 Corinthians had to say, and that is, that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, it might not be fair, but I want to remind you that we are a, if you'll put it this way, we are a team and in team, there is no I. That's an old saying. So don't go saying, Pastor, do you hear what Pastor said? Man, Pastor came up with something really profound. <laughs> we are a team, and there is no I in team. What you do affects me, and what I do affects you in some fashion. And hopefully how it affects you is to raise the level of your spirituality, not cause you in some way to fall away in spirituality from the things of God. So let me put this into three statements, and I'll finish. Statement number one. True freedom is knowing your rights and being willing. You want to know what, really, what it really means to be free? True freedom is knowing your rights and being willing to forego using them for the good of others. The person who knows that those idols are nothing, that that temple up there where they worship the idols is nothing, that the meat that's offered to the idols can be eaten and it will not contaminate you. That's somebody who's got it right. There's one God. There's one Lord. That isn't a God. He isn't true. He can't harm you. The person that's truly free is the one who knows the idol is nothing as well as other kinds of questionable things, but willingly. The person who's really free is the one who can willingly surrender his or her rights for the benefit of other believers. That's the one who's really free. You know what the weak brother is? The weak brother isn't yet free, is he? The weak believer has not yet realized the fullness of his or her true freedom in Christ. They don't have the knowledge yet. 
And they're still living under that bondage. Can you imagine? You've come out of this idolatry, out of this paganism. You're relatively young in the faith. You haven't grown a whole lot yet in the faith. You're still trying to understand all the things that you believe and all the things you're supposed to know. And you're still trying to grasp it all. And you got a brother who's banging, banging on you this way, keeps hitting you, keeps hitting you. Oh, man, what are you doing? You're, I, I don't understand. I don't get it. And in the process, you discourage them. And they get discouraged and they fall away. Who's free there? The knowledgeable one has the true freedom. The one who's the weak one isn't yet free. And that's, we understand that. They're not yet free. We want them to get to the place of knowing that, where they can really live in that freedom, but they're not there yet. Can I just remind you that Paul nowhere tells believers that they should defend their rights? That's what we do. I have a right to do this. You can't tell me what to do. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do this if I want to do this. Paul nowhere tells believers that they should defend their rights. On the contrary, he emphasizes that believers must always, must always be willing to give up their rights for the sake of others. So that in essence, Paul says here, would you destroy another believer simply to eat some high-quality, cheap meat? I mean, is a... A little bit of beef mean that much to you? That you'd end up destroying somebody else in the process of participating? I mean, this is not somebody who just, eh, I don't like it. I'm not, that's not my favorite thing. I, I, you're talking about, you, you, he uses words like destroy. You cause them to perish. You cause them to stumble in the process. Their knowledge may have given them the right to go to the temple and eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols, but it did not give them the right to tear down a brother or sister in Christ in the process. It did not give them a right to put a stumbling block before their brother or sister. There's always somebody in the crowd who says, well, why don't we expect the weak to grow up? Tell them to grow up. Pastor, spend some more time with them. Help them mature in their faith. Take them into the scripture and show. You like this? Show them. Show them what they're supposed to be doing. I've seen people do this talking to me. Show them what they're supposed to be doing. Don't expect me to limit my rights. You tell them what they're supposed to do. Let them catch up with the rest of us. Well, the fact of the matter is we do want them to grow in their faith, and I hope that through the preaching and the teaching and the life groups and the many things that we offer, that they are growing in their faith and they can come to the place where they're sound and stable in their faith and they have a maturity about them to know that some of these things that are in the world that are done by Christians that could be offensive really shouldn't be offensive, but they're not there yet. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, says, we're to bear with the weak. We're to take them into consideration. Somebody else might ask, does this mean that I have to limit my liberty for every Christian that has a beef? You like that? <laughs> does this mean that I have to limit my liberty for every Christian that has a beef with what I'm going to do? And the answer to that is no. Get this point. Please, get this point. God is not asking us to surrender all our rights to the permanently, perpetually immature Christian that walks around looking for other believers' Christian freedom so that he or she can oppose it and stop it. Hey, you've been saved 10 years, you've been saved 15 years, you've been saved 20 years, and you, you, you go into convulsions when you see some Christian doing something and it bothers you, it's not specifically forbidden by scripture it's within the, within the boundaries of the of the principles that god gives they chose something different than you chose it's time for you to grow up you you, you are becoming the perpetually weaker brother you are you, you've become the professional <laughs> weaker brother that's not what he's talking about there's been times in my life that I've done things precisely because I knew the person who was telling me they didn't think I should do them told me they thought I shouldn't do them. Because I knew that they had been saved a long time 
and they knew better. And I wasn't going to let them control what I was doing by their own whims and their own likes and their own dislikes. Listen to it again. God is not asking us to surrender all of our rights to the perpetually immature Christian that walks about, walks around looking for other believers' Christian freedom so that he or she can oppose it and stop it. He's talking about actions that might cause a weaker brother to stumble. And we have to have discernment. Sometimes that's a child. Sometimes that's a teen. Sometimes that's an adult. But they're younger in the faith. They're not as knowledgeable in the Lord. They're not as grounded in the Scripture. And doing that could cause that brother or that sister to fall away from the Lord or harm them in their walk with the Lord. And the result is, I will not, because out of love, I have a right to do it, but out of love, I will not do it because I will, will not intentionally harm my weaker brother or cause him to stumble. We do not need to appease every Christian who disapproves of everything they do not personally like because some believers, some individuals play the role of the weaker brother just to exert control over others. Are you with me? True freedom is knowing your rights and being willing to forego using them for the good of others. Stop, the point is, stop and think about how what you're doing affects other people. Number two, our actions are not always justifiable even if they're not inherently sinful. They're not always justifiable even if they're not inherently sinful. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, right? Sometimes the choices we have to make in life are not about right or wrong. They're about what's wise and what's foolish. Why can't we understand that? Look at it. And I'm running out of time here. This is a hard passage to make sure you understand. Are y'all still with me? You need to stand up for a moment. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 4. Paul's talking about he has a right to have a wife. He has a right to be paid by the churches, to be supported by the churches. He has a right to all of those things. Verse 4, do we, not have, do, do we have no right? That's the same word for liberty in verse 9 of chapter 8. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? Down to verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? In other words, I, I, you know, I could come and say, you're, you're going to support me, you're going to take care of me, but what, I, what, what do I do when I come? I'm a tent maker. I'm bivocational. I work making tents, and then I come preach, and I come witness, and I come disciple. I have a right, though, I have a right to, to eat and drink, taken care of by the family of God. I have a right to have a wife like others have wives. I have a right to refrain from working and just do ministry. He goes down to verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, this liberty, but endure all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Or over to verse 18. What is my reward then? I don't want you to pay me. I'm coming to work bivocationally. I don't want money from you. Would to God some of the television preachers would say that. What is my reward, he says, verse 18, that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my, here it is, liberty, my right in the gospel. What does Paul do? Paul wants you to understand that it's justifiable for him to expect the church to take care of him and, su and support him and to pay him while he's there in the city, take care of him, but he doesn't exercise that right because he doesn't want to hinder the advancement of the gospel. Our actions are not always justifiable, even if they're not inherently sinful. In 2005, July 2005, a reporter asked the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, why he rode his motorcycle without a helmet. He said he didn't like to wear a helmet. He liked to ride the motorcycle without the helmet. And what he meant was that it wasn't required by the law, and so he didn't think he needed to wear the helmet. But less than a year later, in June of 2006, Roethlisberger was injured in a serious motorcycle accident. A woman in a car hit him. He was thrown onto the car's windshield. He had to spend seven hours in surgery to fix a broken jaw and a fractured skull and missing teeth and other injuries. 
And after he left the hospital, Roethlisberger said that he was sorry to his fans, his family, and his team. He said he had risked his health and life for no good reason. He said he'd had a new perspective on life. He said that he'd wear a helmet if he ever rode a motorcycle again. If I ever ride one again, I'm going to wear a helmet when I ride my motorcycle. I mean, Roethlisberger had the freedom to ride without a helmet. But it was pretty dumb to do that, wasn't it? Our actions are not always justifiable, even if they're not inherently sinful. I'm going to have to pass over those. Number three, and finally, knowledge may make a person smart, but it's love that makes a church strong. Knowledge may make a person smart, but it's love that makes a church strong. I read a couple of phrases that I'm going to give you. It says, knowledge blows up, but love builds up. I like this one as well. Truth straightens us, but love sweetens us. I like that. You understand what he's saying here? Go back with me. Chapter 8. I'm hurrying. Verse 4. There's two statements that are made in verse 4. See them? Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that. Here's statement number one. An idol is nothing in the world. Paul agrees with that. And that, here's the second statement, there is no other God but one. Paul agrees with that. What's Paul's problem? Paul's problem is how they're applying those truths. He knows those truths to be accurate. It's the problem with how you're applying those truths. And in the process of applying those truths, you're taking other Christians down with you. Can I tell you, the most loving thing you can do sometimes is just say, I I could do that, but I'm not going to do that because it might hurt somebody else in the process. I'm through. Almost. We're a family. We're a part of the body of Christ together. When one of us hurts, the other hurts. When one of us rejoices, the other rejoices. We, we're connected to each other. What you do can affect me and what I do can affect you. If you find me sitting in a bar somewhere, you better call, you better call uh, the, uh, well, call Mary, yeah. <laughs> Actually, Mary's probably up at the bar ordering. <laughs> if you find me at a bar somewhere, you better call the psychologist and say, you need to get over there and find out what's wrong with that preacher. You know why I don't go to the bars? Because I will not cause somebody else to stumble in his or her faith. I will not cause somebody else to find out whether they are an alcoholic or not. There's all kinds of those kind of things. You say, wow, that puts me in a straitjacket. No, it didn't put you in a straitjacket. It gives you liberty to say, you know what? My relationship with God isn't determined and isn't enhanced by the things that are out here that everybody else is doing. My relationship with Jesus is enhanced by my walk with him and giving up some things every once in a while because it might benefit somebody else and help somebody else along the way in their growth and in their walk with God is worth it. I close with this story. I went back as far as I could to find a story like this. It's about Charles Spurgeon, one of, one of the, the, the most famous preachers of all times. But Charles Spurgeon used to frequently visit Monaco in, down in the French Riviera. He used to visit Monaco, which had, had been a gambling resort for years. And Spurgeon, of course, wasn't a gambler, but he enjoyed visiting the grounds of the casino of, of Monte Carlo and walking through its lavish gardens. And Spurgeon thought the gardens were some of the most beautiful in the world. And one day, after a conversation with one of his friends, Spurgeon determined that he'd never, ever go there again. The owner of the casino had said to Spurgeon's friend, you hardly ever visit my gardens anymore. And Spurgeon's friend replied that since he didn't gamble, he didn't think it was fair for him to continue to enjoy the beautiful gardens without making some contribution to the casino. And the owner encouraged the friend to continue coming because he would lose customers if the friend quit visiting the gardens. He said, this is what the owner said, there are many people who don't intend to gamble in the casino 
who feel quite comfortable visiting the gardens. Then from the gardens, it is but a short distance to the gambling tables. You see, when you visit my gardens, you attract other people who eventually become my gambling customers. And Spurgeon said, because of that, I will never go back to Monaco or walk through those gardens again. And he didn't. 